1: Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome
2: wherever you are in our great country or around the world. As you heard, this is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. Always happy to be with you and share thoughts, ideas, libertarian values, and among those are just open discussion to be able to discuss really anything on a level basis without calling each other names. A responsibility, of course, is key, and as it says in our theme, the idea being if we do employ these libertarian values, we will all rise together. So as you'll discover by spending a little bit of time with us at 7 o'clock Pacific or 10 o'clock Eastern on Friday mornings, you'll be able to hear really some of these issues that often are just not discussed by the main parties or sometimes what we call the old parties because uh, politically they're just – they're afraid to touch it you know, school choice, health care, that sort of thing, Uh, we discuss them directly. And talking about discussing them directly, today we're just fortunate to have Dan Fishman with us, who happens to be the executive director of the National Libertarian Party. And uh, so, Dan, welcome to All Rise, and thanks for being with us.
3: Thanks very much. And, you know, I I love the name of the show, because All Rise is exactly what we're talking about. Uh, When Dr. King wrote from the uh, Birmingham jail, he said, a man can't ride your back unless it's bent. We all rise together. That's standing up for liberty.
2: Well, and you can thank Larry Sharp, who came up with that, obviously a play on words with what bailiffs say when judges take the bench, but it really is, like Ah. you said, and it was Larry Sharp, so uh, we'll give him a a special pat on the back. But tell us, you know, who is Dan Fishman? I, I don't know you that well. How did you become the executive director of the National Libertarian Party? Give us a little of your background.
3: Sure. So, uh, I, uh, my libertarian story is similar to most people's. Uh, I had started off in one of the old parties. Uh, I was, uh, my parents were both academics. And so I was raised in a democratic party household. Uh, and then more out of rebellion than anything else in 1980, I declared myself a Republican. And I said, I support Ronald Reagan. And my parents of course were horrified, which was part of what I wanted to do. But, uh, I got into the politics of it, and I certainly liked some of the things that Reagan was advocating for, a smaller government. Government doesn't need to do this. Government doesn't need to do that. But in the mid-'80s, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson convinced me that wasn't their vision for the Republican Party, and so I became politically homeless for a while. And in the mid-'80s, I found the Libertarian Party, and I self-identified as a Libertarian. But I didn't get active until uh, 2011 when I was living in Massachusetts and working as a software engineer, and Barack Obama signed the National Defense Authorization Act, which at the time suspended habeas corpus. And they said, under suspicion of terrorism, the police can bring you downtown, hold you for questioning without a charge, without the right to a uh, an attorney, and without the right to a speedy trial. And that spoke to my family's personal history. My grandmother had come over from Russia because one day her family had come home and her father was gone and they asked the neighbors what happened they said the police came and took him they went down to the police station the police said well we have no idea where he is and they never saw him again one of our fundamental rights is the right of due process right police cannot come and take you for a suspicion there has to be a charge you have to be brought in front of the judge you have to know your accusers um and when they said when they did that i said i have to do something and though I did not consider myself a politician. I said, I know that I can speak. I can speak to these issues. Let me address this product, this topic. And so I ended up running for Congress in 2012. I ran against, uh, I was in Massachusetts. And in Massachusetts, our politics are different than the other country, than other states. Uh, My Republican opponent was an out-married gay man who was pro-life. And my Democratic opponent was a uh, staunch, Uh, personally uh, pro—sorry, I said my Republican opponent was a married gay man who was pro-choice. My Republican opponent was personally—my Democratic opponent was personally pro-life, eight terms in office. And Massachusetts had not elected a Republican to federal office in a general election since 1994. So they thought they had their perfect candidate. They had this guy, good-looking, but also— appealed to a uh, demographic uh, group that said Republicans thought they were going to get them in. And I was running just basically on the, on the idea of civil liberties, due process. Government shouldn't take things that don't belong to them. And because the race had so much animosity in it, uh, it actually was the most expensive House race in the country that year in 2012, I got to be in every single debate. And the first time that happened, I was petrified. I thought, how am I possibly going to debate national issues with people who are actually either congressmen or professional politicians, and they know everything? As it turns out, they knew nothing. Uh, uh, They probably knew politics,
2: They probably knew politics, (laughs) and there there it ended.
3: That's exactly it. And so, in fact, at one point in time, I, I debated with a Democrat about Medicaid and Medicare. And I thought, well, this guy, I mean, he's a senior citizen, but he's also eight term congressman. He's going to know everything. And he didn't know much at all about it. And uh, so uh, the media essentially said I won every debate. Uh, the headline usually was Fishman won the debate. Here's what happened. Uh, and then they would ignore me after that. I ended up with four and a half percent of the vote. But I was 17,000 votes and the margin of victory was 4,000. So I got the, uh, the lovely libertarian moniker of spoiler. But it was a big race. It had a lot of national attention. And so more people became aware of me, and especially in the state of Massachusetts. And I realized that by running for office, you can call attention to libertarian issues. So although I wasn't planning on actually running again uh, so soon, a friend of mine who ran a restaurant in Beverly, Beverly, Massachusetts, where I was living, called me up and he said, Hey, Dan. I got this real problem with liquor laws and I'm like, "Mm, what do you, what do you mean? He said, well, last weekend, a couple kids from Endicott, which is a private college in Beverly, Massachusetts, a couple kids from Endicott with really good fake IDs came into town, bought alcohol, went back and trashed the campus. And the town, the college complained to the town. The town responded by passing a law that said the only valid form of identification in Beverly for buying alcohol will either be a Massachusetts driver's license, or a U.S. passport. And my friend said, look, I just had to turn away a U.S. soldier in uniform with his Virginia driver's license and his military ID, both of which match and say that he's 25 years old. Oh, he's goodness. like, how can that be right? I'm like, you're right, it's not. So I ran on that one issue, and mm. this was for city council, and I was never going to win a city council race because city council is It's not just about ideas, it's, did your kids play soccer with my kids, and did you go to the local high school, none of which I've done. But, just in running for office, and talking about that one issue, and because I had a little bit of press notoriety for my congressional run, the law was changed back to the more permissive thing before the election. So, sometimes, as libertarians running for office, we're able to see changes that we couldn't see. If we uh, that wouldn't happen if we didn't run for office, and so well, you won that, made that me election. The power.
2: Let, let's let's face yeah. it directly. You won that election. Good for
3: you. Well, and, and it, it is. It's actually, it actually was a. It was that was the thing that made me say, "I can do more." So after that, I became much more active. I became the political director of the Libertarian Party, uh, and I helped run other people's races. And so we ran uh, fourteen candidates in uh, twenty fourteen. And then in 2016, uh, I had the honor to be named the uh, Northeast Director for the Johnson-Wells campaign. Uh, and part of that came through the fact that in my 2012 campaign, uh, Governor Wells had become aware of my campaign, and he sent me a very nice personal note saying, uh, you know, I thought you were the best candidate in the race. So that was great, uh, and I got to learn a lot from running that time. And then in 2018, I thought, now is the time in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts has a reputation for being the bluest state, and we are by a mile. There are six states in Massachusetts where, the uh, six cities in Massachusetts where, you cannot sell a sixteen ounce or smaller water bottle that's huh. made out of plastic. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we we refer to California as that big red state on the west coast. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I said, you know what. There's an opportunity to really get the libertarian message out there. Let's run for auditor, state auditor. And I had this great campaign uh, slogan, which was, why would you elect a Republican or a Democrat to audit Republicans and Democrats? It's the one position that truly both sides ought to agree to be run by somebody who's neutral. The auditor's office had a tremendous number of scandals over the last four years. And then we have this, uh, really good television commercial that uh, if you're a football fan, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, And I have to preface it to say that people in Massachusetts feel differently about Tom Brady than people in the rest of the country. But the, uh, so the commercial started off with a tight zoom on a man's chest and it says number one Colts fan. And then it zooms out and he puts on a referee's Jersey. And then it shows him walking out into Foxborough stadium and he picks up a football and says, stop the game. These balls are underinflated i walk out and i say that's not right republicans and democrats have been playing political football with our taxpayer money and the auditor is supposed to be the referee and the referee shouldn't be wearing a jersey of one of the two teams so that went over very well uh we had a strong campaign excuse me i had the good fortune to be uh uh to be separated from my job in august uh my company was getting ready to do an IPO. They came to me and said, Dan, you're really old. Uh, we'd like to give you a severance to stop working here. And I said, that's awesome because I can run full time. So from August till the end of the year, I ran full time. Uh, I ended up being endorsed by all the major papers in Massachusetts, the Boston Globe, Worcester Gazette, Telegram. Uh, and it was the first time either paper had ever endorsed a Libertarian. Uh, and I thought that we had a lot of stuff going, but a week before the election, I was speaking to uh, a group of Democrats because I'm not going to win in Massachusetts unless I get Democrats to vote for me. I gave them the whole spiel. Why would you elect a Republican or Democrat to audit Republicans and Democrats? Uh, and I could see the heads nodding in the crowd. At the end, a woman said to me, she's like, you know, Dan, I like everything that you had to say. I think you'd be an amazing auditor. Your qualifications are great. But the party has told me that if I don't vote blue, all the way down the line. That shows weakness in the Democratic Party. And that allows Donald Trump to build the wall. And I cannot have that. And people stand up and they started clapping. And I thought, oh, my God, we are screwed. And so simultaneously, that was the weekend that they announced that the executive director's position was open. And I talked to my wife about it and I said, you know, this would be a big sacrifice for us to give up uh, you know, I was, I'm a successful software architect in Massachusetts. To give all of that up and go work for the party, we would have to move in D.C. We had a, a wonderful community of friends that we would built in Massachusetts. But we are both, uh, we're both children of immigrants. Uh, my, my grandparents came over. My wife's parents came over. And we came to the United States. Our family came to the United States seeking liberty. Yes. And when we talked about it, it's been threatened. And so, I ended up applying for the job, and uh, you know the chair was chair selected me. And so here I am. Well, Dan, you, you've said a great deal
2: in the last uh, five or so minutes, and I'm going to go try to catch back up again. But my view is that so many people like you who are immigrants, or are children of immigrants, look askance, look with dismay at how our government is moving, because we are moving toward those types of governments from which they left, because they saw that the civil liberties were were under attack. And now they're they're so more concerned, just like we libertarians are. A lot of people here, like me actually, that were born here uh, and been here several generations, oh, I have nothing to fear, I have nothing to hide, so let the government look into my my various records, et cetera. And then you say, you know, you became active with the passage of that so-called National Defense Authorization Act, which was a direct frontal attack on our civil liberties. Uh, good for you. But we still have Guantanamo in existence today where we've had people there for a decade or longer actually without any charges, without any trials. And, and shame on us. It is a blight on who we are as a country from my standpoint.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And the problem with it is is that not only are those things happening, but in general, people have become complacent about them because they have been taught fear. And they've been taught that deliberately because the two old parties are corporations. They are corporations that sell elections. And in America, you know, Calvin Coolidge said, the business of America is business. Once elections became a business, We got great at applying marketing science to it, at analyzing all the statistics, figuring out how to win elections. But winning elections is so much different than actually what we're supposed to be doing with our government. And winning elections has now become a process of money. And as a result, winning elections is tied into who can give me the most money. Because if I'm a corporation, that's all I really care about. And I think if you ask anybody right now, Republicans and Democrats don't care about good government. They only care about winning elections.
2: Well, it was Arianna Huffington that said only half-jokingly that we really shouldn't have elections anymore. We should just give the governmental position to the person that raises the most money. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of what we've done, just like you say. Uh, I can also say that uh, Nick Sarwark, who is, as you know, the, uh, the Chair of the National Libertarian Party, or the yep. Libertarian, uh, was ran for mayor of Phoenix last election, and I had him on All Rise one time, and he was saying that he was involved in all of the debates. Uh, for mayor of Phoenix except for the last one when he had a prior engagement and all of his people that attended the debate said they were totally different without the libertarian on the stage because the Republicans and Democrats could then avoid so many issues they did not want to talk about but when Nick was there he brought up those he, he made them fill out that which is exactly of course what you did and then you know talk about audit. One of the things when I was running for senator, actually, as a libertarian back in 2004, uh, I would begin my discussion with, look, we should have an audit of the federal government. We should have sunset laws such that any law that we pass every, what, seven years, five years, whatever we choose, and every organization, every Seven years must by itself go to Congress and say, Look, this is what we have done for the last five years. This is the amount of money we've spent. This is what we've, we've accomplished. This is what we're proposing to accomplish in the next five years. And they can look at how much bang for the buck are we getting? An audit is a really good idea, and like you say, why should you have the Republicans auditing the Republicans and the Democrats auditing the Democrats? Uh, We need a third party in there. Our country needs that to get away from this factionalism that we have now, and and so much. So let me ask you, Dan, because in the recent edition of the Libertarian Party newspaper, uh, you wrote a column that I've really appreciated, called Examining the Facts about Factionalism. Uh, Explain to our audience, what do you mean by factionalism? What are the facts that you
3: believe we should be aware of? You know, one of the, everybody knows that uh, George Washington in his farewell address advocated against political parties. And if you know that part about it, that's great. But if you go on to read what he said afterwards, he talked about the fact. That political parties break the natural bonds that we are supposed to have each other with each other as humans. And, you know, it's obvious to anybody in a society, certainly in a, in a pre-corona society, that when you're outdoors and you see another person, you nod to them. And if you see somebody who's struggling with a bag of groceries, people would help them with that. We are naturally bound to each other in this, you know, odd experience that we are all sharing our, our personal lives we're meant to be that way but factionalism and what the parties have recognized is the opposite of that it's trying to find a way to make you fearful of what the other people will do and that factionalism you know it represents itself in republicans and democrats significantly and they talk about the fact that they are uh, you know and republicans and democrats they don't really stand for anything anymore either if you look at uh, in all, all these great examples of, uh, the president's tweets in the past that he's contradicted. So in 2012, uh, very current one, 2012, the president tweeted any president who allowed the stock market to go down by a thousand points in two consecutive days ought to be impeached. You know, that that's pretty laughable in 2013, however, uh, when the Democrats controlled the, uh, house and the Senate and the presidency, uh, but they didn't have a filibuster-proof majority, they said, you know what? The Republicans are blocking us from nominating all these judges. So we are going to get rid of the filibuster for every judge below the Supreme Court. And the Republicans said the filibuster is a sacred thing. Democrats, please do not remove the filibuster. You know, you can argue for what we want, but if we have 41 of percent of the senators saying don't appoint these judges, you shouldn't do it. And the Democrats said, you know what? The filibuster is outdated. We don't care about it. We're getting rid of it. And so the Democrats remove the filibuster. Four years later, the Republicans are in power and they want to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And the Democrats have a filibuster level. They have more than 41 votes. And the Republicans say, well, we're going to get rid of it. And the Democrats say, oh, no, the filibuster is sacred to our American democracy. Republicans, remember you said that, and the Republicans say, ah, you know, we were just saying it was just politics. We don't really believe that anything's sacred. We just care about power. I might be paraphrasing a little bit there. But what happened, right? The Democrats get rid of the filibuster in 2013. Republicans say, oh, no, it's sacred. 2017, the Republicans say, oh, no, nothing's sacred. We'll get rid of the filibuster. It's of the Democrats' dejection. Another example, 2013, right, the Democrats, uh, Barack Obama, they're getting ready to invade Syria. And the Republicans say, no, oh, no, don't invade Syria. Don't put troops on the ground in Syria. it be a terrible mistake. Don't do it. 2017, exactly the opposite. Republicans are in charge and they want to put troops on the ground in Syria. And the Democrats say, oh, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> All of these issues on which they have become parties of position and opposition. And they don't care where they are on the political compass. Whatever position the Republicans stand out, the Democrats are going to take the opposite of it. And that's factionalism really hurts us. And it's not just the Republicans and Democrats. The Libertarians are sort of having that sometimes too, because we argue about what is the most important issue in liberty. And if people don't come on board with our number one important issue about liberty, then we are factionalizing against them, because it's important that our issue get addressed. When really, we're missing the big point, that the important issue is liberty. I love the fact that our fundamental position as libertarians is only two principles. Number one, you own yourself. And number two, don't use aggression against other people. And all our political positions can be extracted from that. People famously know that libertarians support legalizing cannabis. We don't support legalizing cannabis because we want you to get high. I mean, if you do, that's totally fine. But we support legalizing cannabis, decriminalizing cannabis, because Number one, you own your body. If you want to put something into it, we don't feel like we have the right to stop you. And number two, non-aggression. We're not going to use force against you to prevent you from doing something like that. We're not going to throw parents into jail. We're not going to separate families because a parent had possession of a joint because they might have smoked something. We're not going to use aggression to enforce these things. Marriage equality is the same thing. We don't support marriage equality because we think, oh, we we want state-sponsored marriages, or we think government should get involved, or that we actually have any care about how people define their family. We support marriage equality because, number one, you own yourself. Number two, we're not going to use aggression or force to enforce these things. And so we miss the point, as libertarians, when we get factional amongst ourselves, when we start saying, oh, you know, unless you support... The gold standard or unless you support uh you know any number of controversial issues within the libertarian party what we have to say all the time to ourselves is liberty first and that should be our answer all the time liberty first freedom first
2: hear ye go ahead hear ye hear ye Um, this man other than those thoughts you have no opinions whatsoever i'm assuming but you know you cover so much and i try to to slow a little bit down and and you've brought up so many extremely important points you know as far as fear you're saying elections have become a business and fear sells and uh, politicians really don't care about the future dan as you know they only care about the next election and as long as we can get gerrymandering that's fine as long as i don't care if you on the other party get a safe seat as long as i get a safe seat so i can bring up all this various extremism the other thing too i, I ran for for senate as a libertarian and then ran as you know for vice president with governor gary johnson in 2012 Mm -hmm. and on your point the biggest knife wounds i received during those two elections came from fellow libertarians it's i just wasn't i didn't phrase this quite right or i wasn't pure enough You know, actually i'm a pragmatist i believe in using what works it happens that libertarian approaches are the ones that work the best i can also say that Okay. I've been writing a musical. It's done now. It's called Convention, The Birth of America, and it's about the Constitutional Convention. So I'm really into the founding fathers, actually the founders, because numbers of women were as right. well, Abigail Adams, etc. But they they discussed, they fought, they debated, many, many issues. But Dan all to the last 55 delegates to the National Constitutional Convention, each one said that the most important, the most important function of government is keeping the government from encroaching upon our liberties. Number two of importance is keeping us safe. So we've gotten so far away from that. It's only the libertarians really that carry that now, the The founders would rebel against what our government is doing in so many ways. It's the libertarians that actually not only are philosophically correct, but it's who we are. So we're going to come back after this break and talk a little bit more, get into a little more even of this factionalism, and talk a lot about uh, why, in fact, this hasn't caught on from Dan Fishman as the executive director of the Libertarian Party. Why are we not electing more people? Because in my view, we have the best candidates so often. But stay tuned. We'll hear these couple of messages and come back with our special guest, Dan Fishman, the executive director of the Libertarian Party, just after this.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash voiceamerica. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States. And it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States. And we are making a difference. Join the Libertarian Party today at LP.org. Together, we can move mountains.
1: You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way, with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. As you
2: heard Uh, Our theme song, Americans All, which is actually, I talked about my musical convention, this is Judge Jim Gray, that I wrote another musical to, in effect, try to mentor our high school, junior high school teachers or students, and Americans All is the theme of that. If you are involved with high school theatrics or musicals and would like to learn more about Americans All, because it's available for you, just go to my website, judgejimgray.com, click on Americans All, has some of the songs, has the uh, the actual full length version as well, and you're certainly welcome to take it to your high school uh, if you wish with no charge. But we're back here talking to. Dan Fishman, the executive director of the Libertarian Party. But before we come back in that, Dan, I've been asked by my wife, uh, Dr. Grace Walker Gray, to use a little bit of silliness, a little levity in each of my shows. So this is often where I do it. So, Dan, do you know what you get when you mix when you cross an elephant and a rhinoceros? I mean, this is going to be one of the most significant questions. What do you get when you cross an elephant and a rhinoceros? And the answer is, elefino. And elefino. There you go. <laughs> So I, I'm a, a former uh, school teacher, so I have a large collection of jokes like that that are appropriate please, for children. Please, please share them with us because uh, those are kind of fun. But sure, to get I'll, back I'll to you, this, I'll you, go ahead. Dan, I, I I'm so concerned about our country, uh, about our loss of yep. liberties, about our deficits, about you know we're going in the wrong direction. You say, and, and we do. Uh, don't tread on me, but libertarians really say, don't tread on anybody that uh you, you come back with the marijuana issue and I came out publicly against our nation's drug policy as you probably know back in 1992 as a sitting trial court judge held a press conference and one of the reasons for it is <clears throat> it makes as much sense to me to put this gifted actor robert downey jr in jail for his heroin problem and he's, he's had that lifelong problem uh as makes as much sense to put him in jail for that as betty ford in jail for her alcohol problem you know it's the same thing it's a medical issue bring people closer to medical professionals that can help them uh, instead of pushing them far Farther away. But of course, if Betty Ford, Robert Downey Jr., you or I, Dan, drive a motor vehicle impaired by any of these, including alcohol, which is my drug of choice, that's a crime because now our actions are putting other people's safety at risk. But I end with and the reason I'm bringing this up now is to say that it makes as much sense for me to have the government control what I, as an adult, put into my body as it does what I put into my mind. It's just none of their business. And I think that's what you're saying in, in a very special way as well. But I I, so I've taken it upon myself to try to mainstream the word libertarian, to mainstream the, what libertarian values are, what libertarian life would look like. And I wrote a what I call one man's libertarian white paper, and I sent it to you, and I talk about famous libertarians like Thomas Jefferson who – Classically said, I don't care if you worship one god, twenty gods, or no god. It doesn't pick my pocket and it doesn't break my leg. Which is another way of saying just live and let live. But, but just try to uh, express mainstream libertarians. Were you did you have an opportunity to glance at my one man's libertarian white paper? And if so, uh, give that. me some thoughts.
3: Well, I, I thought it was fantastic, and uh, you know, I definitely would like to uh, make sure that more people read that. I'm sure. You probably have it up at a URL, but uh, with your permission, I'd like to put it up on the Libertarian uh, website as well so the people could see it, because it, it is very good reading, and it puts it down simply, because the thing about it is our concepts are not complicated. In many ways, we have the simplest of all philosophies, because Republicans and Democrats, whatever they say their philosophy is, it's usually except for this or except for that, except where it gets in the way of, us being a political party or except where it gets in the way of us gathering power libertarians our philosophy is always the same and the best example of that is that our platform has not changed significantly since the party was founded we haven't had to say oh you know what we were wrong about this or we were wrong about that and i i think of one of the ways that my personal philosophy has changed to come in line with the Libertarian Party, which philosophy hasn't changed, and so in the '80s, uh, I was a person who supported the death penalty because I believed in a justice system that was just, and I didn't think it was possible that there could be corruption in the justice system. And to that extent, you know, some of the most important people in my life uh, were very involved in the justice system. My uncle was uh, an assistant district attorney in New York City, uh, and went on to become uh, the head of the ACLU in a couple different states. And he was a man who was dedicated to justice. But at one point in time, he told me about a case he was fighting where a uh, law student was arrested, and the, the public defender tried to pressure him into taking a plea. And he knew his rights. He knew that he was not guilty. He knew the law in and out. And he wouldn't take the plea. And the public defender took him in front of the judge in the judge's chambers. And the judge said, if you don't listen to this guy's advice and take this plea, we are going to sentence you to the maximum possible no, sentence. God. Terrible. Exactly. Oh. It's the worst possible thing. And oh. when I heard about that story, and as they investi- as we investigated, as my uncle investigated it, being the head of the ACLU in the state at the time, he said, this is a lot wider spread than we realize. There are people who are being threatened into pleading guilty to sentences, to crimes that they have not committed because either they they feel like they might lose or the possibility of being taken away from their family or whatever it is, they get threatened into taking a plea and pleading guilty when they are not guilty. And this is very widespread. And so in a country where we have, in a lot of states, three-strike rules, right, this person's first conviction might have been for something that they didn't do. And so, if we have this scenario, how can I have enough faith in a justice system anymore to possibly think that the death penalty could be just, and this was really tried for me, uh, living, I was living in Boston during the marathon bombing. And there's a video of Joe Carson. I have, putting the backpack with a bomb down next to, uh, one of the three people who was killed a six year old kid named Richard Martin. And, uh, that video right it's pretty strong and it's pretty damning and this is an amazing young boy who uh there's a picture of him he made a sign when he was in kindergarten saying no more hurting people Mm. and you know he's a victim of terrorism and this person put a bomb next to him and somebody asked me surely you support the death penalty here i said i can't do it because i can't support the state ever having that power because justice has gone Awry enough. And I mean, I am a person who, you know, I, I believe that 99% of the people involved in justice are the best people, people who have dedicated their lives to the cause of justice. But there are so many, that 1% of the time when it goes wrong, it's terrible. And we have to assume that that is part of where we go. The Libertarian Party has never wavered on that. The Libertarian yes. Party has been against the death penalty since its inception. And it's not. Because you know we have a complicated philosophy, it's because we have a simple one, right? You well, are yes, the right. life. Go ahead, sir. Well. All
2: Rise had, on the 8th of November of 2019, the head of the Innocence Project in San Diego named Justin Brooks. And he himself, Dan, told us on the air he'd been doing this for 20 years. During that period of time, he himself has walked out 29 people from state prison who are factually innocent. And how can this happen? Well, like you say, we have three strikes and you're outlaws or or there's a jail snitch that will testify against you or whatever. And the extreme alternatives are so terrifying that, look, I will offer you – to spend five years in jail if you plead guilty. If you don't, it'll be life without possibility of parole. Even if you're factually innocent, people are pleading guilty. It's just it's just simply wrong. It's not what our country stands for. You also are aware that I've written this book recently, it just was published a, a few months ago, two paragraphs for liberty, solutions that are practical, effective, responsible, libertarian. And in that I have an appendix, and in one of and appendix one is my one man's libertarian white paper. But the reason I'm bringing this up now is Appendix 2 talks about being why the death penalty, regardless of your politics, regardless of your philosophy, it doesn't work. It just simply doesn't work, and it's just the wrong thing to do. So you remember MASH, I'm assuming. uh, Absolutely. DJ Honeycutt was uh, Mike Farrell back back last yep. May 31st of 2019. We had him interviewed here on All Rise, and he talked about the death wow. penalty. We talked about all. We t- certainly talked about Mash first, but you know we are taking these libertarian positions. So let me ask you a really pointed and direct question. I believe mm-hmm. that the libertarian philosophy will lead us out of the wilderness, will keep us where the founders would have us be, but. Why have we not been more successful? The Libertarian Party has been in effect since the 1970s, and we're still a third party. We revel when we finally uh, elect someone like uh, Jeff Hewitt, by the way, and uh, the Board of Supervisors yeah. in Riverside County, who is also on uh, all, all rise. But uh, why is it that we, we haven't caught on, and how can we change that, Dan? Because this is critically important, I think, to our, to our
3: children's future
2: and our country's.
3: I I agree with you, and I think it is a one of the most important things that we're doing right now is, you know, I talked about electioneering and talking about issues, but we need to win and we need to get libertarians elected into office. And one of the reasons why we haven't succeeded is because the two old parties agree on one thing. They don't want to share power, power with a third party because it becomes complicated because for them to sell elections, right? They have to use fear. They have to polarize people. And, and Republicans recognize the fact that in many ways we are much more in favor of personal liberty than they ever will be. And so if you for right now, uh, I was down at Richmond uh, for the Second Amendment rally and I was wearing my libertarian colors and people came up to me and they said, thank you. Thank you, because we can't believe the Republicans supported banning bump stocks. We can't believe that Republicans have given up so many of our rights, our gun rights, because they just want to compromise on rights. On the other hand, I have been to, uh, I went to a, a Black Lives Matter meeting where I talked about the fact where I was, I was invited there and people came up to me and they said, thank you. Thank you for understanding that the need for criminal justice reform is mathematically proven. If you look at, and I don't have to tell you as a person who's served on the bench, that, uh, you know, there is a real racial disparity in how justice works in the United States. Libertarians are the ones who have those things that will force Republicans and Democrats to potentially stop polarizing the society, and that ruins their business plan. So they work against us. The one thing that Republicans and Democrats agree upon is they have to paint libertarians as crazy, so they have to paint our philosophy as one that is so extreme that nobody should ever vote for it. But the way that we beat that is by winning local elections. And so a great example of that, you mentioned uh, Supervisor Hewitt elected in Riverside County. So this is a man, when he makes decisions, people get to see he's not crazy. He's actually arguing for fiscal sanity. He's the one who makes the most sense of these elected officials. There are 13 elected mayors, libertarian mayors, across the country right now. And that's a big deal. There are, I believe, 192 other libertarian elected officials at local level. Those people are showing their neighbors that libertarianism is not about power, and that's what makes it different than Republicans and Democrats. Republicans and Democrats, if you ask them what their political end game is, they're like, "Oh, well, you know, we want a happy society, we want a uh, a wealthy society." Libertarians, our political end game is actually the end of politics as we know it. Because we want the government to have so little power that people won't compete for political office anymore. That it would be more a public servant rather than a leader. Libertarians don't believe that we should be electing leaders. The people aren't sheep. They don't need to be led. Libertarians believe that elections are for people who are willing to protect the public from the power of government. We talked about the founders and the Bill of Rights and the genius of their language. The Bill of Rights is all about what the government shall not do, right? Shall make no laws, shall not infringe. Specifically, it says that your rights are not given to you by government. Your rights are granted to you as a human being. Government shall not interfere with your rights. And that's the critical thing that we have to keep talking about as to why we haven't been winning elections. Part of it is that, you know, we are working against the two greatest election-winning machines in the history of the, co- in the, history of the world. But also, the other thing about it is that we do occasionally fail to recognize the intersection of what we have with the general public. And so the Democrats use the word intersectionality, and they seem, they, they're they trying to claim it, say, oh, we have intersectionality on this, intersectionality on that. But in reality, libertarians should be claiming that, because every person in the country has had an experience where government overreach has significantly impacted their lives. And of course, we are currently living through the greatest, greatest example of the worst of government overreach. Right now, in the coronavirus affecting the country, the test that they are using and testing is such a critical part of this. The test that they're using in China is made by a company in North Carolina that could not use sell that test to be used in the United States. How is that possible? The answer is government interference. Yes. Government overreach affects everybody. And if we talk about that, that's something that everybody can identify with now. Finding those examples of where government interference and government overreach has negatively impacted somebody's life, that's what we need to focus on to win more elections. Say, we are with you on that. And then we shouldn't care if the person isn't ready to accept all of the other things. For example, when we talk about decriminalizing all drugs, that's a scary topic for people who haven't had the time to realize that we're not actually saying we want the country to be addicted to drugs. We're saying that we want people to have liberty in their personal lives. And so we have to find the intersection that we have where people say, yeah, government overreach there is too much. Make that happen. And that's how we bring people to liberty.
2: Well, it was Thomas Jefferson. Remember him? I, I wish more people did remember uh-huh. him because, among other things, he said that we should have a bloody revolution in our country every generation to keep the vested interests at bay. Fortunately, the Constitution keeps that revolution from being bloody. But how long has it been, Dan, since we've had a political revolution in our country? Probably since the 1860s when the Republicans took over from the Whigs. And look at what the vested interests have done since then. And you talk about government overreach, if people, people want to get money out of government people want to get money out of government, then you have to get government out of money. Because once you yeah. make it a, a political issue and you take it away from the free market, then you don't lose by making bad free market decisions if you're in politics because it puts it into just a different playing field. But I, I was on, and I've mentioned this probably twice on our All Rise show before, Dan, but I think it exemplifies what you're talking about. I was on a radio talk show quite a while ago in Iowa, and we were talking about hemp You know, from the, the marijuana cannabis. Right. And a farmer came on in yep. and, and the talk show and said, well, Judge Gray, I'm going to talk against my own economic self-interest because I raise corn. But we're talking about the government mandating that ethanol be created from corn. And he said, you know, if you think right. about it and you know you can get more ethanol from an acre of hemp than you can an acre of corn, and the corn will clog your carburetor and the hemp won't. Now, it wasn't, this isn't my area, of course, but the market will figure these things out. But as soon as the government gets involved, it makes it all political. And so, wait a minute, the Iowa caucus is first in presidential. I want to appeal to the corn, the corn farmers so it becomes a political decision. The Libertarian yeah. Party is the only party that will not profit by being involved in government. We don't want the profit to come. We we want the, the government to reduce, have less effect in the marketplace. Obviously, you know, you're going to have child child working laws and things like that. But but uh, that's why I think the Libertarians are in the mainstream. One one final thought, and then I'll, I'll ask your opinion on the debates because it's critically important. Sure. We had Jeff Hewitt, who you were mentioning, who's really a leader, a guiding light in my standpoint in Riverside County. He was on All Rise, if you can go call it up on demand anytime, uh, October the 4th of 2019, and hear about what libertarians actually do when they're in office. But I, I was mentioning this to you before, I think, Dan, that in my election in 2012 with Governor Gary Johnson, a lot of people favored us. But when it came down to it, oh, you're going to be a spoiler, you're going to... It's going to be a wasted vote to vote for the Libertarian because we were not in the presidential debates. And if you're not, you're not deemed to be viable. So what is the Libertarian Party doing on this critical issue? Because the so-called Commission on Presidential Debates is there are five Republican, highly ranked Republicans on the commission and five highly ranked Democrats. We got their doctrines. We got their documents. And it said the purpose of the so-called Presidential Commission on Debates, the presidential debates, is to get the Republicans. Republican, and Democratic message out to the people, not bipartisan, not nonpartisan. It was literally for their purpose. What are we doing to ensure that the libertarian candidates will be a part of the presidential debates in 2020?
3: So one of the fascinating takes that I take on this, so I, you know, I'm formerly a computer scientist, a mathematician. The question that they ask is, if the election were today, who would you vote for? And of course, before the first debate, everybody who answers, I don't know, I'm waiting for the debate to make an informed decision, that counts against the Libertarian candidate getting to that magical 15% to qualify for the debate. And that's not an accident. That number is chosen deliberately, because remember, the number used to be 5%. Of course, Ross Perot qualified at 7%, and he ended up at 19% because he was in the debate. Another great example of that, Jesse Ventura was at 10% when he was running for governor in Minnesota. He gets into the debate, and he wins. When you have other ideas get in, they get in the mainstream. In the history of modern polling, Republicans and Democrats combined have never polled below 80%, which means that when they ask the question and they require you to get 15%, they're asking you to get 15% out of a possible 20% that's available. And that means that if there's possibly a fourth candidate, like in 2016, where Jill Stein was a credible candidate who was consistently polling at 1%, it becomes even harder to get to that magical 15%, because everybody who says, I actually want to use the debates for their purpose, I don't want to know who I'm going to vote for today, I want to wait and see what the candidates have to say, they count against Gary Johnson getting to that 15%. So what we've been doing as a party and we're going to have actually an organized campaign around this, is saying, we know the Commission for Presidential Debates is biased. We recognize that, and we've tried a bunch of different, uh, different paths to change them. But perhaps we can get the media to ask a different question, even though the Commission on Presidential Debates mandates the question, if the election were today, who would you vote for? If they were to change the question and say, who would you like to see in the debate? Or yes or no, should this person be in the presidential debate? So that actually happened in 2016. Quinnipiac, before the first debate, said, do you think Gary Johnson should be in the debate? And 66% of the people said yes. If we can change the question to be, do you think this person should be in the debate? We have a really good chance of getting a libertarian into the debate. And I think that will make an enormous difference.
2: Well, and Dan, the avenue to this, because they have sponsors, uh, free enterprise sponsors of the debates who pay a lot of money, we should get to, like it was Southwest Airlines and various other groups, we should get to them and show them how it's the American way to have more debates and, and more people involved. The League of Women Voters, as you know, was heavily instrumental in the presidential debates until uh, something in the late 1980s, I believe, and they were frozen out. So, yeah, so they that's right. So yep. they were frozen out and they didn't leave silently. They left with the public statement that we will not be part of the hoodwinking of America. And people should understand that because we've been hoodwinked ever since. In the few minutes remaining, Dan, uh, I believe that libertarians have a really good chance of being elected president and vice president in 2020. But clearly, we do not have the resources, the muscle to compete in states like California, Texas, New York, that they're totally dominated by one big party or the other, but we should aim all of our resources at maybe five selected, independent, maybe small states, and try to win them and tell people, point at them and say your vote here in Montana or Wyoming or New Hampshire or wherever we choose, Alaska, will change history and try to win those electoral college votes. And if we win two or three states, it would very likely throw the election into the House of Representatives and then of course we all know that no Republican in Congress would vote for the Democrat, no Democrat would vote for Republican, but they'd be restricted to the candidates in the election, our candidate would win. What do you think about that as a possibility?
3: I think it's it's a very good idea. And the thing about it is that we actually see the old parties doing that as well. You know, there was this whole thing about, oh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. The popular vote isn't really a thing because Donald Trump didn't compete in California. He never went there. He never spent any money trying to win in California because he knew he wasn't going to win there. And California is the most expensive media market in the country. Donald Trump, the Republicans, don't try to compete in the presidential election in California. Libertarians should recognize that and say, you know what, there are some states that we're going to abandon as well. I don't want to say abandon, that we're not going to put the candidate there, that we want libertarians to not speak, because having libertarian ideals enunciated by a presidential candidate is a big deal. But in terms of focusing our limited resources, there absolutely are a lot of states that we can do a much better job in were we to push at them. States that are closer to liberty, the Mountain West in particular, Utah, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming. Wyoming is a special state that we could do a very good job in. Focusing in those areas and bringing libertarian ideals to life and to light is the Whoa. thing that really can push us forward. May it may it be
2: so, ladies and gentlemen. You have been listening to Dan Fishman, the executive director of the Libertarian Party. You can tell that he's driven by an, a, a desire to make America great. To to continue with that. To. Focus on who we are as a country, which is, in effect, our freedoms and our liberties. That is our soul. And people like Dan Fishman are fighting for our soul, as are we libertarians. So give some thought to joining us as a libertarian party. Help us be in the debates. Help us elect libertarians to, to shrink the size, the intrusion, the cost of government. Address the deficits, which the other parties are not doing Almost whatsoever now. It's just outrageous that we are saddling our children and grandchildren with debt. So listen to this again. You can hear it again on debate on demand. I'm going to listen to this yet again with Dan Fishman because he's come up with just a non- wonderful amount of ideas, lectures, thoughts. Agreements, Dan. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for your energy. Thanks for what you're doing, and I really appreciate you being here with us on All Rise because we know a pleasure, there's a lot of bad things going on in the world, but there are a lot of good things too. And Dan, you're you're simply one of them. Thank you for doing that. Tune in again next week when we have another interesting guest discussing. Real matters on all rise. And if you know, if we employ these libertarian values, we literally will, as Judge Jim Gray says, all rise together. So with that, again, I close by saying life is good. Why do I say that? Because it is.